Well, good morning, everybody. I see a lot of people are in different seats this morning. Somebody came up to me and they said, we're going to have to sit up front. We got here late. It's like, oh, sorry. Um, but it's so good to see so many of you here this morning. Um, it was nice to be able to walk out of the house without a jacket this morning. I was really excited about that. Um, but uh, really happy uh, to see you uh, this Sunday morning. Uh, which uh, actually turned out, or hopefully will turn out better for me than last Sunday morning when I discovered that my identity had gotten stolen. Thanks, thanks, Roy. I... Hey, Roy doesn't even hide it. <laughs> Somebody, I, so right before church, it was like I, I got an email at 9.45. Of course, I'm not checking my emails at that time. I got an email that somebody has changed my Facebook password. And of course, I could no longer get into my Facebook account. Somebody uh, apparently in uh, Malta, I think, is where they figured out where it was. Uh, but that wasn't the worst part. You know, Facebook, I can create a new Facebook page. But um, I also had uh, my credit card information linked to my Facebook account because from time to time I make purchases and things like that. And they started using my credit card. Uh, and I got a, a message on uh, Sunday afternoon that somebody had tried to charge $250 uh, to our account. And fortunately, able to work with the bank. They canceled the card, sent me a new one. They took the charge off, all of those things. Um, but uh, anybody ever have their identity stolen? Any, any identity theft people? Okay, so you, you, you feel my pain a little bit, right? Uh, and fortunately, this was, this was small, right? I know some people, man, they get their identity stolen and it's like they're, they're getting arrested for things and they're having to prove all this. So fortunately, it was not that bad. But it did get me thinking about um, identity. And it got me to thinking about this sermon series that we have been kind of going through over the last few weeks, this idea of God being on trial. And in particular, I thought about uh, the messages from the last two weeks, the things that we've been talking about, where Satan uh, is in the wilderness with Jesus for 40 days, and uh, he is tempting him, and he is doing all of these things, and he uses this phrase over and over again, if you are the Son of God. And it just, it just kind of fit right with what was going on in my life at that time. If you, if you are Joe Dorica, then you need to prove it, Right? And this, is, and this is what Satan is saying to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, prove it. And if you haven't been with us over the past few weeks, I know a lot of people have been traveling, been out, been sick, all of those things. Just um, We're talking about this uh, episode in Luke chapter 4. It happens right after Jesus first comes publicly on the scene. And he has gone to the River Jordan. He has been baptized. And then we read in Luke chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when he had ended, uh, he was hungry. And what happens in this, the rest of this passage is that uh, you know, Satan has been tempting Jesus for 40 days, and what we're reading is coming at the end. It's probably the 39th or the 40th day that Jesus is in the wilderness. And Satan uses this phrase, if you are the Son of God. And we read about these temptations 
that he tries to get Jesus to fall into. The first time Satan tempts Jesus through hunger. And he says, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread because Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. And the second temptation, it doesn't ask Jesus about his identity so much as it asks him to completely give up his identity as the Son of God. And in Luke 4, verses 5 to 7, we, say that we see that the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. And here's the catch. The catch was, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. In both cases, Satan seems to be questioning Jesus' identity, or more accurately, trying to get Jesus to question his own identity in God the Father. And in both cases, Jesus relies on Scripture to overcome Satan and to remain strong in his identity as the Son of God. To the first and second temptations, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy. And the, to the first one, this, the one about bread, he says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy there. And in the second, he says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So Jesus is reiterating his identity, but his identity isn't in himself. His identity is as God's son. God has sent him into the world for a purpose, and he is reiterating that purpose to Satan during this time. And something that I hear a lot of Christians talk about, and, and I've talked about this from time to time myself, Christians have a hard time with temptation. And it almost feels like we're tempted to do things more the stronger we are getting in our faith. Satan is attacking us more and more. And I've had people come up to me and say, you know what, I, I, I keep getting tempted by this, whatever this thing is, and, and I keep giving into it, and I just don't know how to resist this temptation. And the first thing I tell them is read Luke chapter 4. Jesus demonstrates exactly how we can resist temptation, how we can resist the devil and have him flee from us. Jesus used the Word of God. He used the Scripture to resist these temptations. And that is how we should be able to resist almost all of the temptations that come our way if we could just remember the Word of God, if we could know it and know how it applies to us and know our identity in the Father through His Word. We can resist, I believe, every temptation because that's what Jesus did. And I know this is a challenge for Christians. I did, I did some research. The Pew Research Center, I've mentioned them several times, right? They do research on just about everything having to do with Christianity and religion and things like that. And in 2014, they did a study on Bible reading. 
among Christians in the United States. And according to the study, only 14% of American Christians read their Bibles daily. 14%. 45% read their Bibles at least once a week, which happens to coincide with how often people come to church. Now, I don't know if there's a causality there or not, one causing the other, but it's possible that those 45% are only reading the Bible when they come to church and no other time during the week. And they also said that a full third of people who confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior never read the Bible. They just don't. Or they do it so seldomly that they don't even think it counts. In the Brethren in Christ Church, one of our core values is that we believe the Bible as God's authoritative word. We believe that it has authority over our lives. And we study it together, and we build our lives on its truth. But how are we going to build our lives on the truth of the Bible when we don't even read it? when we don't know what it says. This is the challenge that Christians face. It is fundamental to our faith as followers of Jesus Christ that we know God's Word, that we study it, that we know how it applies so that we can build our lives on it. And if we don't, if we don't know what the Bible says, and we don't know what it means, and we don't ask the Holy Spirit to come and help us to learn what God is saying to us through His Word, it is a foregone conclusion that we will fall into temptation. If we don't know what the Bible says, and if we don't know what it means for our lives, we will be deceived. You know why? Because Satan knows the Bible too. Satan knows the Bible better than most of us. Myself included. He knows every verse. He knows every word. And he knows what it means. And the reason that he can deceive us is because we don't. And he can take God's word and he can twist it to mean whatever he wants it to mean, to get us to do whatever he wants us to do. And all of a sudden, there we are. We've fallen into temptation. We are out of favor with God. God is watching us sin. And in this last temptation we read in Luke chapter 4, we see this example of Satan knowing Scripture. In Luke 4, uh, 9 to 11, Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, there's that question again, throw yourself down from here. And then he says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting directly from Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verses 11 to 12. 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Word for word. Satan tells Jesus what God has said. And he's using these verses to try to convince Jesus that it's okay for him to throw himself from the top of the temple. Now what's really interesting though is that Satan, yes, he knows all of Scripture. And Satan purposely does not mention the next verse of Psalm 91. Anybody know the next verse of Psalm 91? The next verse in Psalm 91, after he has said, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And then he goes on, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. Why, oh why, would Satan not want to use that verse? It's the same passage. Why did he stop? Why did he truncate Scripture? I'll tell you why he truncated Scripture. Because in Genesis 3.15, God said that I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He's going to crush your head, Satan. Why wouldn't Satan want Jesus to be reminded of that? Because that's his whole purpose. That's his whole identity. Is to crush Satan's head. So here's Satan trying to use the Scripture, but only the parts that he likes. Only the parts that he thinks will accomplish his task. And he thinks it's going to work. I was reading an article this week. Um, I have no idea how I got onto it. I found it someplace. But it had to do with like old adages and sayings and things like that that, that have changed their meaning over the years. Uh, so how many of you have ever heard of, of this phrase, jack of all trades, master of none? Anybody heard that, that phrase before? Young people probably haven't heard it, but that's okay. You're hearing it now for the first time. You're welcome. But jack of all trades, master of none. We say that about somebody, right? And it's, it's kind of a, a little derogatory, right? We're saying either this guy doesn't have any focus or this girl doesn't have any focus and they're just doing all kinds of things and just kind of going in all directions. Or, you know, they're, they're not taking the time to seriously learn how to do a certain thing. Right? And we kind of use it as kind of a derogatory thing. But did you know there's a second part to this phrase? I never knew before that there is a, there's an ending to this phrase. Jack of all trades, master of none, though oftentimes better than master of one. That's completely the opposite of what we think the phrase means. 
It's not talking about people who are, are all over the place and doing all kinds of things. I used to think, people used to say that about me because I'm a teacher and I'm a pastor and I do this and I do that. And like, oh, well, you're a jack of all trades and master of none. And now I can say yes, but better than master of one, right? <laughs> and these, there are so many of these. I was reading this article listed like, I don't know, 10 or 15 of them. And then there was another article that listed like 50 of them, right? But we all know that the Bible has become susceptible to this kind of practice. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, Money is the root of all evil. How many even? Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is not the root of evil. It is not a sin for us to have money. It's a sin for us to love money. It is a sin for us to sin in order to get money. It is a sin to lust after money. But even then, money is not the root of all evil. It is only the root of some evil. And this is where we start getting into these arguments with people, right? Because we say, oh, well, money, it's all money. It's all has to do with money. Money is the root of all evil. That's the, if, if, if everybody had money, then nobody would have any problems. Baloney. There would still be sin. And there would probably be more sin the more money people had. We cherry pick these Bible verses. And the world does it. Right? And, and we see that the world does it. They cherry pick these kind of Bible verses and they put God on trial. Right? And they'll say something like, uh, and I read this is actual like Twitter thing that I read uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, according to your Bible, and I love, the, I love the accusatory style of this already. According to your Bible, your God condones slavery and genocide and child abuse. That was an actual direct quote from Twitter. Somebody was talking about God and how evil he is. How many of you are highly offended that somebody would say that our God condones slavery and genocide and child abuse and is evil? Anybody offended? Yeah, we get offended. We certainly do. That's blasphemy! And we let those people know in no uncertain terms that it's blasphemy. And we certainly don't do it with gentleness and respect. Like we've been talking about over the last few weeks. But here's the important thing. If you don't know what the Bible says about God, if you haven't read your Bible, if you haven't studied your Bible, if you've never cracked open your Bible, how do you know that it's blasphemy? How do I know that it, that it doesn't say in the Bible that God condones slavery? Never read it. Just been told. Pastor told us that this is not true. Okay, what does the Bible say? 
We're talking about God being put on trial here. This statement is direct evidence being produced by the prosecutor, by Satan. He wants people in the world to believe that God is evil. And it is our job to be witnesses for God. It is our job, and I would say it is our job to be expert witnesses. It is our job to ask those questions. Where do you get the idea that God condones slavery? Where do you get the idea that God condones child abuse? Show me in the Bible where it says that. Show me why you're telling me this. And if we know our Bibles, we can come back and we can refute that direct evidence. But if we don't know our Bibles, what are we going to say? We need to know the whole Bible. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to know it in its entirety because it communicates who God is. It communicates the relationship between God and us. And we need to know it. We need to know how people in the past have broken that relationship with God and the things that God has done to try to repair that relationship to bring us back to Himself. We need to know what people in the past did wrong so that hopefully we can learn from their mistakes, so that we can learn from that history, so that we can say, I'm not going to do this. And all of that is in the Bible. And it's not that God condones these things, it's that they happened. We need to be able to know what happened. It is not enough for us to walk around with a life verse in our pocket. This was a really big thing in the 70s and 80s. Everybody had a life verse. I had a life verse. In Hebrews. But it's not enough to just be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's all the Bible I need. It's not enough. It's not enough to memorize John 3.16 and use that for the entire basis of evangelizing people, of witnessing to them, of telling them who God is. Now, it's a good verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That is the crux of the Gospel. But it is not enough to just say that to somebody and expect that they're going to just accept it. How do you know God so loved the world? Well, God so loved the world because He did this in Genesis and this in Exodus and this in Leviticus and this in Numbers. How do you know that it was His only begotten Son? Because Jesus talked about it right here in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke and in John. Not 
Knowing life verses. Knowing tiny little portions of the Bible is not going to help me answer the question, why is God so evil? I got to know it all. I got to study it all. And guess what? You never stop learning the Bible. You never stop learning the truth that God has in there. This is a lifelong pursuit. And you know when you will know the Bible perfectly? When you die and you stand in the presence of Jesus Christ. You will know the Bible perfectly. Until then, it is crucial that we study it. And then after we study it, it is crucial that we know how to use it correctly. Because a lot of people, a lot of Christians, they'll read their Bible, they'll read, I read my Bible once through every year, have no idea how to use it to share the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. It's like the guy, some of you have heard this, this, this little joke story before, right? This guy sitting alone, despondent and depressed in his room, late, late one night, and he prays to God that God will show him what to do or tell him what to do. And he's got his Bible sitting right there, and he decides to let God show through his word what he's supposed to do. And he's depressed and he's despondent. And he says, I'm going to open, God, I'm going to open my Bible, and I'm going to point to a verse, and whatever it says, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I think you want me to do. And he closed his eyes and he opened his Bible and he stuck his finger down there and the verse talked about Jesus, uh, Judas going and hanging himself. And he was alarmed. He was like, wait, whoa, maybe this, hold on a second. Maybe I got this wrong. Maybe I got to do it again. And I prayed really hard, prayed even harder and harder and harder. And then he opened his Bible and he pointed to the verse where Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. That is not the way to use the Bible. Christians throughout history have used the Bible to do some horrific things. It's true. Read your history. Because they cherry pick certain passages and certain verses. And they say, this is what God wants. It's absolutely true that slave owners in the United States in the 17 and 1800s, pointed to various places in the Bible to convince themselves that God thought slavery was good. That it was okay. It's even absolutely true that Adolf Hitler twisted the Bible to convince the German people that Nazism was, and this was a quote, non-denominational positive Christianity. Did you know Hitler wasn't actually a Christian at all? He actually described himself as a pagan. He took from all different religions. Whatever would help him accomplish his task. And the task at hand at that time was convincing the German people that the Jews needed to be obliterated, needed to be wiped off the face of the earth, needed to be killed, 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 killed. And he used the Bible, and he used the church leaders to convince them that this was true. And because most of those people in most of those churches had never really read their Bibles before, they believed it. Because the church leader said it. 
want to give you a challenge this morning and for every day for the rest of the time that I am here as your pastor. Don't trust anything I say. That's not to say that I'm not going to preach truth and I'm not going to tell you what is in Scripture. But don't just go by what I say and not open your Bible and check it out and make sure that it's true. The Bible itself tells us to test everything. I am a fallible human person. I might make a mistake. I might get something wrong. And I invite you, if you ever feel that I have said something wrong or talking about something wrong, you come to me and you tell me and let's sit down and you show me in Scripture where you think it's wrong. Because I still want to learn my Bible. Don't just take the word for someone who stands up front in front of you every single week and tells you something. I appreciate your trust. Look it up anyway. Check my references. Right? Check my citations. See if what I'm telling you is true. We don't even have to look at horrific stuff. We don't have to look at Hitler. We don't have to look at slavery. To know that Christians often select a cherry-picked theology that suits their own desires instead of the desires of God. We become rewriters of Scripture so that it can suit our lives with just enough of God left in there to make us sound religious, to make us sound Christian. And a lot of the Bible gets ignored. Christians just ignore... The, most people just skip over the Old Testament altogether. Which is really weird because almost all of the New Testament refers back to the Old Testament. It refers back to the way things were before Jesus Christ came. And it tells us, almost step by step, if we are able to connect the dots, exactly what, what God's plan was, what Jesus got here. Don't ignore the Old Testament. And don't ignore the parts of the New Testament that you don't like. And we do. We ignore parts of the Bible that we think, oh, well, that, that doesn't really apply to me. And we look at things. Money is the root of all evil? No. The love of money is the root of all evil. But not for me, because I'm not an evil person. I can have a lot of money, and it, it, won't, it won't affect me at all. Guess what? It might. It might not, but it might. And the temptation's going to be there. The temptation to take your identity and put it into your money instead of into God the Father is going to be there. we got to know the whole Bible. It is time for us to stop hiding our heads in the sand when it comes to the Bible. It's time for us to stop Practicing ignorance. There is one of these in every pew. And I would, I, would, I would almost make a bet that there is one of these in every single one of your homes. And you know what? If there is not one of those in your home, 
I'll bet you you can find one of them on your phone. There are 837 Bible apps that are available to you for free. The rest of them you got to pay for. We, as modern Christians, have no excuse for not being in the Word of God every single day. We don't. One of the problems I think we have is that we look at Sunday morning and we think that's enough. We get all, we get all of our Bible that we need on Sunday morning. No, we don't. No, we don't. Because I'm going to guess that 90% of you right now are not sitting here being tempted about something. You're just listening to me talk. I'll bet you tomorrow you're going to be tempted by something. And if you don't have the Word of God to resist Satan, you might fall into that temptation. I might fall into that temptation. This is why it is so important for us to study our Bibles every day. And I believe, as, as a pastor, I believe that it is important that we have small groups of people within the church who are willing to gather and study the Bible. We got a women's group. Meets here, what, uh, first, is it first and third son, uh, Thursday? First and third Thursday of the month at 10, 10 o'clock. First and third, 10 o'clock, right over here, we got women here studying the Bible and praying. Right now, I'm in the middle of working on getting a, a men's group started. I don't know when the last time is that, that Morning Hour had a men's group, but we're working on it. I am so thankful, and, and we are so blessed to have Becky, who's leading our youth through Bible study. And our youth are curious. Our youth want to know what is in this book that's supposed to guide our lives. And I'm going to encourage us, whether it's a, a formal thing that you know, we, we do with the, the whole church, or if it's something that you just want to get together with some friends and get into the Bible. I don't know, on a Tuesday night, have dinner, study the Bible. Whatever you do, we need to be more prepared. One of our deepest desires as Christians should be to know God. No, that's wrong. Our deepest desire as Christians should be to know God. And the best way to get to know Him through prayer, and through Holy Spirit-led study of His Word. That's what we should want. And Jesus knew this, and that's why He was able to resist the temptations that Satan threw at Him. This last temptation, He finished that in a few words. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Simple, easy. He used Scripture. Deuteronomy again. Do you want to be able to resist the devil so that he will flee from you? 
Spend time with God. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, including Jesus. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And this is one of those other verses that we take, and we make it mean something else. This does not mean God's not going to give you more than you can handle. Yes, He will. But He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, that you may be able to resist it, that you may be able to go through that temptation yet without sin. And the primary way that God gives us for escape from temptation is His Word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You do love us enough that You gave Your Son to, to die in our place so that we might know You for all eternity, that we might live with You for all eternity. But God, even more, we thank You for giving us Your Word, for giving us Scripture, for telling us in writing who You are, and for telling us in writing who we are to you and who you should be to us. Father, put in us a deep, burning desire to know you. Put in us a, de a deep, burning desire to study your word, to get to know what it is that You want from us. Let us not go from this day forward keeping everything the same. Let us start talking with our friends, talking with others in the church, and finding time to get together on a regular basis to study Your Word, to struggle with Scripture, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us in the things that we're supposed to be doing here on earth to build Your kingdom. And we thank You, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be uh, taking communion. Uh, we do this on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, we will uh, also be doing this on the Thursday before uh, Resurrection Sunday. We'll be having a foot washing and communion service. But we take communion because Jesus asked us to. Jesus, on the night before he died, sat with his disciples and had dinner with them. And during that meal, he showed us a representation of the things he was about to go through for us. He gave us bread to represent the body that was about to be killed for us. And he gave us wine that was representing the blood that he was about to spill for us. 
so that we might know eternal life. And this morning we are going to celebrate those things that Jesus has done for us. Before we partake, before we come forward, um, I'd like to give you a moment or two to just quietly reflect, quietly pray. If there's anything in your life that you know is an unforgiven sin, ask God to forgive you. Reflect on this time, and especially here at this Easter time, we reflect on this bread and this cup and the sacrifice that Jesus made. So I'll give you a few moments to uh, prepare your hearts. In the Old Testament, we read that the bread gives life, that it gives rejuvenation, that it gives us strength. And I don't think that it is a mistake that Jesus used bread to represent the strength that he gives us through his sacrifice, through his death and resurrection. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and after supper he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat it. This is my body which is broken for you. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. The body of Jesus Christ. Often in the Bible we read of wine being used for medicinal purposes. It's meant to strengthen stomachs. It is meant to uh, strengthen bodies. And again, it is no mistake that Jesus chose wine to represent the blood that he has shed for us, the blood that heals our sin, that heals our souls, and that allows us to enter into the presence of God the Father. After supper, Jesus took a cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink this, all of it. This, blood, this uh, wine is the new blood of my covenant, which is shed for you each time you do it. Do it in remembrance of me. And I encourage you to remember the work of Jesus Christ as you take the cup. If you are the Son of God, Satan questioned Jesus' identity. He tried to force Jesus to question his own identity. This week, as you pray, as you read your Bibles, if you are a child of God, how will you answer the world? Ask that question. If I am a child of God, and then find your answer in Scripture, to what that means. God bless you this week.